We all know that Ukrainian soldiers are currently defending Mariupol from their base in the city's massive Azovstal steel plant. The Russians have managed to destroy and take so much of the city, but can't claim victory whilst the Ukrainians are still holding out in the plant. Women and children are in there too, taking shelter, and have been down there for weeks. The reason they're able to take shelter there, and the reason why the Russians have been so far unable to seize the plant and its defenders, is because beneath the steelworks lies an enormous nuclear bunker, apparently five floors deep. A video was posted on Twitter a couple of days ago, claiming to show the interior of some of the tunnels down there. It looks uh, frightening. Well, how else could it look? But it seemed to me almost medieval. Not something built during the Cold War. I'm used to visiting British nuclear bunkers and they tend to be very clinical and calm almost. Always deserted, always echoey and empty, but very... Yes, the word is clinical. Long corridors, squeaky floors, notice boards on the wall, desks and typewriters in the rooms. It could be some medical clinic or school after hours. After all, the bunkers in Britain, um, those designed for civil defence, they are, of course, just underground offices with some living space. A couple of dormitories, toilets, a canteen and then just offices. It is a place, after all, to conduct the admin of Armageddon. So yes, they do tend to look a bit prim, a bit dull, a bit clinical. Not so with the bunker beneath Avastel, if this video is accurate. It shows a warren of dark, twisting, endless tunnels which seem to be lined with corrugated steel. Everything is grim and dark and gloomy, illuminated by a torch or maybe it's the light from the camera phone. It looks, uh, rather than a modern nuclear bunker, it looks like an escape passage cut underneath an ancient castle or an abandoned prison. It looks like something from (laughs) a dystopian computer game where you're running through endless tunnels trying to hunt down some kind of beast dreamt up by Lovecraft. Now, I'm speaking here, of course, from the safety of Britain. I've got my dog at my feet. I've got some tea going cold here at my elbow. I'm grateful that that safety means that I'm able to turn away now in this episode from the absolute horror of Mariupol and we can just focus on that gigantic bunker. Why is it there? Who built it? What was it for? So we're going to skip back to the Cold War and look at the Soviet Union's concept of industrial civil defence which created this bunker and others like it across the former USSR. Before we start, let me tell you that the Russia expert, Professor Mark Galeotti, has kindly agreed to appear on the podcast. So the interview will take the form of a Q&A, so if you have any questions for him, please do email them to me. Also, I have recorded a new Four Minutes of the War game. It's now available on my Patreon site. It's a reward for patrons only. I upload extra podcast episodes there, and we'll now be adding to that a new series, Four Minutes of the War Game. 
following the same format as my ongoing Four Minutes of Threads episodes. Here's a short clip, so if you like what you hear, maybe you will consider joining my Patreon with a monthly donation and you can get access to all the bonus podcast episodes. Back to the film. Our concerned local woman uh, has two questions for the council staff then. What race are the evacuees and what will I feed them on? We can have a bit of sympathy for her on that second question, what am I going to feed them on? Because we've just heard that she will be receiving, and this is compulsory, remember, 10 evacuees. (laughs) As a reminder of the compulsory nature of this scheme, there is a policeman looming over her shoulder whilst she is given this news. Now, I don't know how big her house is, but 10 is a lot for any household, surely. As I already mentioned, there would be a billeting allowance, but can she spend this on food for 10 extra people when we can assume that every other household in Chatham will also be trying to dash to the shops to grab food for 8, 10, 12 evacuees? So not only are the locals trying to feed a sudden and massive increase in population, but this would be happening on top of government advice that we all stockpile and fill our kitchens with essentials to see us through the attack. Now we know that that's advice from Protect and Survive, and Protect and Survive wasn't around at this time in the mid-60s, but its predecessor was a booklet called Advising the Householder on Protection Against Nuclear Attack. A very So please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo for more details on how to join. You can join any time and you can cancel any time. So, on to Soviet industrial civil defence. First, let's do a quick survey of general Soviet civil defence. My source here for any quotes is a book called The Limits of Civil Defence. It's an academic book, so it was expensive, and I thank my patrons because I used some of my Patreon funds to buy it. Just like Britain, uh, Soviet civil defence was shaped hugely by the Second World War, or the Great Patriotic War, as the Soviets called it. As we've discussed many times in this podcast, the British wartime experience gave our nuclear civil (laughs) defence... A bit of a a burdensome inheritance because so much of our civil defence was just like a reheat of what we did during the Blitz. Tin hats and ladders and volunteers ready to fold blankets and dish out cups of tea. Trying to apply the Blitz techniques to the nuclear threat often made Cold War civil defence in Britain seem silly and futile and certainly left open to attack but not so in the Soviet Union. There, civil defence was associated with the Great Patriotic War, and having Red Army soldiers working in and with civil defence gave it an aura of pride and glory. We know that the Soviet countries had war memorials everywhere and tend to be hugely proud of their efforts and sacrifice in the war. And some of that sense of pride and glory was transferred onto civil defence that rubbed off on them. British civil defence might be portrayed as volunteers pottering around with the old pots and pans from the 40s, but in the Soviet Union, they were seen as being up there, or at least in proximity to 
the glorious Red Army. A huge difference in perception of civil defence's worth and value. Of course, uh, and the book makes this clear, we don't know as much as we might about perceptions of Soviet civil defence. It was the Soviet Union, of course, not exactly known for being free and easy with details and truth. But from what we do know, civil defence behind the Iron Curtain was closely paired with the military and so lived in the borrowed light and glory of the military. In fact, from 1972 onwards, Soviet civil defence was officially integrated into the military. It was no longer just associated with them or working alongside them, but actually integrated. This happened under the leadership of General Alexander Alchunin, who became head of Soviet civil defence in 1972. He had been a great war hero who received the highest Soviet award, Hero of the Soviet Union, plus a million other medals. Order of Lenin, Order of the Red Banner, Order of Alexander Nevsky, Order of the Patriotic War, Order of the Red Star. Having this lad in charge of civil defence made it clear that civil defence work was not some weekend hobby or some wartime leftover. It was hardcore. Similarly, his predecessor in civil defence had been Marshal Vasily Chukov, a war hero who had fought at Stalingrad and whose nickname was the Man of Iron Will. Speaking of the moment when Chukov received his orders to go to Stalingrad, he said, uh, and this is a quote from his Wikipedia page, I was told that I was to take command of 62nd Army. My mission? Defend Stalingrad. After Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev told me to go to Stalingrad, he asked me, what are your thoughts? Well, what could I say? I said, I understand my orders just fine, and I'll carry them out. I'll do what I can. I'll either keep them out of Stalingrad or die trying. There were no more questions after that. They offered me tea, but I declined, got in my car and drove to Stalingrad. He was also laden with military awards and honours, even more so than our guy Alchunin. So it's obvious that the Soviets were putting some serious blokes in charge of civil defence. To get an idea of how seriously the Soviets took it, or at least how seriously they wanted civil defence to be perceived by both their own population and by the West, approximately 100,000 Red Army troops were dedicated to civil defence in the 70s. And the book tells us that under wartime conditions, that number could grow, if we include civilian conscripts, to between 16 and 20 million. To make civil defence seem even more prominent and essential, Alchunin in the 70s introduced basic military training to schools. Added to this, Children would learn civil defence skills during their time at the pioneer summer camps. And adults had to do compulsory civil defence training. Each eligible adult across the whole Soviet Union had to do seven different courses. And that amounted to each person doing 124 hours of civil defence training. 
This was all happening when Britain, uh, by way of contrast, had recently disbanded their civil defence corps. It was also happening during the 70s, which was, of course, the period of détente in the Cold War, when relations between East and West were supposed to be quite relaxed. So our politicians might have been meeting and shaking hands for the cameras, but on the ground in the Soviet Union, civil defence was growing and getting serious. Now, why were the Soviets so madly keen on civil defence? The book suggests it was a kind of compensation for the fact that in the first half of the Cold War, The Soviets lagged behind America in nuclear weapons. I mean, they lagged badly behind, of course. There was an obvious, uh, painfully obvious gap. And so a spectacular and vigorous civil defence programme was perhaps a way to plug the gap, or at least mask it, until they could reach nuclear parity. But even when they did reach it, civil defence didn't let up or fade into the background. They kept it, I assume, because having this huge civil defence programme was a way of telling the enemy, okay, we get it, you can nuke us into near oblivion. But you can't get all of us. Somewhere, somehow, a Soviet person, at least one, will still crawl out from underneath the rubble. Having such a strong civil defence programme also suggests that you don't have total faith in nuclear deterrence. When Britain wound down her civil defence, it was because, uh, as usual, money was tight and economies had to be made. And one argument for that was, okay, let's throw our lot in with deterrence. Put our money, our available money and attention to that, to weapons, active defence. The argument being that deterrence will prevent war. And so we won't need a civil defence corps. But the Soviets had both. They weren't putting all their eggs in one basket. And by keeping both going, you were upholding deterrence whilst hinting that deterrence might fail. And that's why we need this hefty civil defence programme. And by doing that, you were perhaps unsettling or worrying or needling the West. Because why would we have all this if we weren't constantly thinking, yep, yeah, it might just happen. The Soviets also liked civil defence because it was a way of portraying the communist leadership as benevolent. Look how we care for you, our, our comrades. The state is planning to look after you. We're not cold-hearted, every-man-for-himself capitalists. We're taking measures to defend and protect our people. And also, having such a huge and vivid civil defence programme was, uh, arguably, a propaganda move, because it gave the state the reason, or the excuse, to keep pumping out pamphlets and instructions and public information films telling you how to behave and what to do, all whilst driving home the constant message that there is a threat. The enemy is out there. But even though Soviet civil defence was 
knotted together tightly with the state and the military and woven into concepts of patriotism and loyalty and so pushed beyond criticism. After all, in Soviet Union, civil defence criticises you. There were still reports from people who had left the Soviet Union of some gentle ridicule and disquiet about the very notion of preparing to survive nuclear war. The book um, quotes a familiar Soviet joke about the effectiveness of civil defence. A worker asks his local party secretary, Comrade, what should we do if the Americans launch a nuclear attack? Simple, the party secretary replies. You wrap yourself in a sheet and make your way slowly to the cemetery. Why slowly, comrade? the worker asks. Simple again, the secretary replies, so as to not cause panic. Consider also the nickname given to the Soviet civil defence programme. It was nicknamed Grob, which is short for Grazdanskaya Oborona, which means civil defence. But Grob also happens to be the word for coffin. There were three main strands to Soviet civil defence, and these will be no surprise to you. Shelters, evacuation and dispersal. To clarify the difference between the last two, evacuation refers to getting civilians out of target areas, whereas dispersal refers to spreading your essential workers around, either by moving their factory or office to a safe place, or if that physically can't be done, dispersing the workers so that they can be moved out to nearby countryside or suburbs and then be transported into the danger area each day for work because you don't want all your essential staff bundled together in, for example, high-density housing in a target city. Disperse your workers. But when we think of civil defence, we probably think first of bomb shelters. But the Soviet experience of the Second World War taught them that there is more, much more to it than just the concept of shelter. If we look at the terrible siege of Leningrad, we see that only a tiny fraction of the deaths were from bombs or shells. The book tells us that one and a half million died in Leningrad, but only 17,000 of those deaths were from bombing. Most were from starvation and disease. So that's nothing to do with shelters and everything to do with stockpiles and supply. So the Leningrad experience taught civil defence planners, or at least reminded them, that it's hugely important to look to the protection of labour and industry. You need to somehow keep producing the food and the medicine and the supplies and getting them around. It's not all about bomb shelters. So Soviet Cold War civil defence, having learned from that, gave great importance to the survival of industry. Not just for the survival of the economy, but for the survival of the workers who would be needed for that industry. If I can step aside for a moment, I spoke yesterday on Twitter about Leningrad, and it was some deeply distressing stuff. The book I used for this episode, uh, The Limits of Civil Defence, quoted a famous book on the siege of Leningrad, 
which I had on my shelf, but I'd never had the time to read, never even opened it. Of course, I reached for it now, and it talks about the absolute desperate state of the population during the siege, many of whom were starving, as we know, and the story is that some resorted to cannibalism. So this book refers to cannibalism, both cannibalism for profit and something called necrobutchery. So I, I got the book from my shelf, which I never opened. It's called The 900 Days and is by Harrison Salisbury. And I looked for the section being referenced and, my God, it was horrific. I don't know why I was surprised. Of course, it's the siege of Leningrad, but for God's sake, it was some strong stuff. I only read a few pages because I could see myself easily getting lost in that book. And I knew that I had to get back to this podcast, but... From the short bit I read, about about four pages, I would say, it looks like an incredible piece of work and I want to get back to reading that as soon as I can. That's The 900 Days by Harrison Salisbury. So that's what we must always bear in mind. Uh, The Soviet civil defence experience was shaped by absolutely hideous experiences like Leningrad, which showed two things. The danger of having your population all in one place, in one city, for example, which is then besieged. And also the importance of stuff, food, medicine, food, food, food. And so the importance of being able to shift people and plant was obvious. But here are some problems. As you know, that's a constant theme in this podcast, looking at nice, prim, proper, chirpy little civil defence plans on paper, and then looking at what we know of the reality of war and thinking they would not stand a chance. So the Soviet uh, plan, the grand and ambitious plans they had to evacuate millions and millions of people and to move industry to safer places... How would that have worked in reality? Well, the book, The Limits of Civil Defence, tells us exactly what those limits would have been in the Soviet Union. The main one to their bold plan to evacuate people and industry would be the weather. That harsh, brutal winter and then the slushy thaw of spring where roads and the rail network can be flooded. We've seen this happen recently with the Russian invasion of Ukraine where the invaders were frequently bogged down in soggy roads and fields. They call this the Rasputitsa, which is when the roads can become impassable in spring. So imagine the Soviet Union trying to shift millions of people and (laughs) countless factories during vicious winters or the Rasputitsa. Consider also the generally poor nature of Soviet roads, even when the weather is fine. Same goes for rail. The book tells us that many Soviet rail networks were single track, so could easily be snagged and snarled and stuck if millions are suddenly on the move. And so, uh, when you look at industrial civil defence, it made more sense for some factories and plants to... Just stay where they were. 
Of course, some had no choice. Some couldn't be moved. You can't load a gigantic structure like the Azov-style steelworks onto a train and trundle it away across the Urals. Some factories and workspaces could be moved, of course, and we saw that happen in the Second World War. But many would have had no option but to stay in place. There's not much you can do, though, to fortify or shelter such a a massive, sprawling industrial installation as the Azovstal steel plant. But that, of course, could have been one of its strengths in any war. Unless the city of Mariupol or part of the city took a direct hit, then it might have been okay. Or at least salvageable. Maybe. Depends on a million different factors, of course. But what about the staff? Even if the huge plant managed to scrape through intact, how do you protect the workers? The answer was simple. You build a gigantic bunker right beneath the plant itself. If the plant is too big to be moved to safety, simply dig down and create safety beneath it. Miserable, gloomy, terrifying safety. And so that is where the last defenders of Mariupol are. They are in the huge Cold War bunker beneath the steelworks, built to withstand nuclear attack, built as part of Soviet industrial civil defence, built to withstand an attack from America, and now being attacked by Russia. The huge Azovstal plant has only been forced to shut down once before in its history. And that was in 1941, when the Germans invaded. And Nevit has shut for only the second time with the Russian invasion. And it is sheltering people, as intended, from a terrible, despicable threat. So that's the end of our episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Remember, you can get extra podcast episodes on my Patreon. So please take a look if you want to sign up at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And remember you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website juliemcdowell.com. And let me thank all the new patrons who've joined in the last week. There have been a lot of you, I assume you're all keen to get in about the new podcast episodes, and that's great. I thank every one of you. And as we fade out our nuclear music, let me give shout-outs to all my new patrons, Thank you for supporting my work. Thank you Alison Treacy, Tracy McLaughlin, Ian Brightman, Chris, Lisa Tyrer, Arnold, Eric J. Byrne, Todd Reppert, David Barton, an increase in pledge from Matt Williams and Sean Judge. Thank you guys. Also John Forsyth, Alex Greenwood, Blackpool Boots, EDM1, Jesse Andrewarta, Reese Jackson, Heather Cameron and Kate Mercer. Thank you all for listening and I'll be back next week.